Good morning. Welcome to Forum. Today we have a special treat. Uh, we get to welcome the Reverend Glenna Huber, who is the rector of the Church of Epiphany uh, here in uh, downtown DC. And she graciously agreed to do a pulpit swap and be here with us this morning. Some of you may have already heard her sermon at nine o'clock, um, and some of you will get to hear it at 1115. Uh, but today we get to hear some of Reverend Glenna's uh, thoughts this morning during the forum. Um, I told her to share whatever it is that she uh, felt called to share this morning. So I'm, I'm just as curious to you, as you to hear um, what it is that she'll offer us. I'll start us with prayer. God be with you. Let us pray. Loving God, who guards us and protects us, cares for us and liberates us, we ask for your presence among us. Show us your peace and your love. Guide us as we learn. Open our hearts to your word. And send us to share your wisdom in the world. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. The floor is yours. Awesome. Thank you. Do I, is there, you want I'm excited to be here. I probably have more information than I'm capable of sharing with you this morning. I do hope that we can be in some type of conversational experience. I am, um, I'm going to tell you my public narrative. So like Ledley, I was sort of brought up in um, uh, an organizing uh, experience IAF, the Industrial Areas Foundation. Does he talk about this? Do you know this? Yes? You have some sense? Some of you, yes. Some of you, no. Awesome. Okay. So this is my public narrative. My name is Glenna Huber. I was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa, Oklahoma is not southwest. It's not quite midwest, but it's in the middle, squished between Kansas and Texas. It easily gets absorbed in the Texas milieu of stuff. Uh, but it's also understood to be sort of the Bible Belt. So that's where I was born and raised. My father was Creek Indian, and my mother is African American. I am an adopted child um, of three. I had my oldest sibling. Uh, we are all 10 years apart. My oldest sibling was also adopted. He died from complications of HIV uh, back in 1999, maybe 2000. And my youngest brother is their biological child. Um, my father was the only one in his family to go on to pursue higher education. Uh, at that particular time, he died when he was 70-ish, somewhere in his 70s. So he was an older parent. 
Um, and again, the only one in his household to go off to higher education. The way he told the story is that he was the only one with the car and he drove from Oklahoma to Atlanta without a windshield. I don't believe it, but that's the story of, you know, that's, that's how determined he was to go to and graduate from Morehouse. He then went on to Howard to graduate from medical school. He came back and built up his own medical practice on the north side of Tulsa. That medical practice housed um, everything that one would need to access medical care. So your pharmacy, your radiology, your physical therapist, your mental health, your dentist. And he was a, well, he was a general practitioner, but a gastroenterologist mostly. This is a big deal because you remember in 1921, the race riots decimated a particular segment of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So there is a street which divides the north from the south. If you want to get gas in the year 2023, you have to go to the south side. If you want to get groceries in the year, well, now we're in 2024, so if you want to do it in 2024, you're going to have to go to the south side. So having medical access on the north side of Tulsa was my father's mission, which meant that as I understood my upbringing, at the dinner table every evening, and we had dinner together every night, he would ask, what have you done for your community today? That's what I remember from the beginning of my memory. So we'll just say it's revisionist history, but for the purposes of the story, I was six years old. Six years old. Some people, I asked my kids, how was school today? What were your roses? What were your thorns? My father wanted to know, what have you done for your community today? Because, he said, there is nothing that you, Glenna, have done to deserve any of this stuff. You don't deserve the food that I put on your table, the table. You don't deserve the roof over your head. It is only through love that you get this. And because you have it, you have a responsibility to make sure that everyone you come in contact with has access to it that was embedded in who I am, who I was becoming, how they raised me. Now, at some point, it became necessary to differentiate myself from my family and who I am. And so that put me on this journey. And in the midst of this journey, um, I determined that I was going to follow in there. My, my mother was doing the same thing, just uh, her passion was education. Um, she grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Every time a new school integrated, my grandmother would move apartments so that they could go to the newly integrated church. That is traumatic. Um, she tells stories that, uh, those are her stories to tell, but they're horrible. And she hated it. Uh, and graduated at age 16, went on to nursing school, excelled there as well, and then um, went to a nurse anesthetician. So both of my, my uh, parents were in the medical profession. They did their residency at Homer G. Phillips in St. Louis, which at the time was the only hospital for black uh, medical professionals. And then they moved back to my father's house, home in Oklahoma. He grew up in Okmulgee. I think Okmulgee's about this big. 
It's right. It's that. It's about that big. Uh, that's where he's buried in the Indian. Um, it's called the Indian graveyard. So, I decided that I was going to pursue justice. I was going to give back and make sure that the people I came in contact with had access. And how was I going to do that? Because it is labor-intensive work. And I saw my family organizing. I saw my family organizing money. I saw my family organizing people in order to improve conditions. And sometimes it didn't work. And I had to wonder, like, how do you, how do you stay, how do you do this? Because sometimes it hurts. Working, I was in Maryland, I told you, in the Diocese of Maryland. I was living in Baltimore. There is um, just gun violence, rampant gun violence. A six-year-old is shot. And I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a second. We have done all this work. We have been organizing. We've been talking to the police. We've been, we rooted out some evil stuff. We got the, the uh federal government to come in and uproot some of the yucky stuff. So how is it that a six-year-old still gets shot? It hurts. It's disappointing. So what is it that keeps me invested? And it's just how I understand the gospel, how I understand God's call on me. And so I wanted to say that I find uh, part of what I wanted to say is that I'm rooted in hope. I'm rooted in hope. And I use in my sermon, I talk a little bit about a dominant narrative. And I'm taking this dominant narrative definition from Walter Brueggemann, who is who's a, a Hebrew scholar. I think he's one of the lead, I think he is the leading living scholar on Hebrew scripture currently. But the dominant narrative, by his definition, is one that is motivated by anxiety, greed, and the pursuit of self-sufficiency. And when we shift from the dominant ego-focused story, we hear a God-centered, transformative narrative. And we sing a song. And so um, I, it's, I'm going to share Isaiah... Isaiah 35. The wilderness and dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. So we find ourselves at times in spaces of wilderness. But the wilderness does not last forever. Joy always comes in the morning. Uh, we know that... Um, the dry bone story is another great story of God just breathing life into that which we understood to be dead. So I think it's important that we tell our story, that we understand our story, that we heal from our stories, but we can't heal from our stories unless we give them life. I can stop there because now I'm just going to get into some technical stuff, but if people have questions or thoughts or comments. I only have like 15 more minutes, right? 30. Oh, sweet. Do you have um, questions or comments or thoughts or did something percolate based on what I've offered so far?
thank you so much. And I just, I, I had to write down that phrase, rooted in hope, because it's a time when it's hard to be rooted in hope. And it is, it's an action, not a feeling. And that's what I am hearing from you. And I, I'll go into the next service. I haven't heard the sermon yet, but just hearing people talk after the service, that is what people took away from your message. And so I'm very, very grateful that you're here with us today. And I'd love to hear a little more about how do you keep that that flame of hope alive in the face of the death of a six-year-old in the face of a lot that's happening now? Sure, I'll say the simple answer is that hope exists for me in the divine. And so my faith uh, understands that God does not break God's promises. And God promised that there would be something better. God promised that we would be restored. Now, I will tell you that just last week, was it last week? Uh, the Reverend Dr. James Forbes was here, and uh, sort of, he's phenomenal also. If you have a chance to hear him or read his stuff, he was at New York Presbyterian Church. At some point, he will die. And, and I'm, I'm acutely aware that some of these giants are getting closer to the end of their, their time here on this earthly journey with us, and they have done some phenomenal things. Uh, so when I was living in New York City, thanks so much. When I was living in New York City, I had the opportunity to be with Dr. Forbes. Uh, he was the first black pastor at Riverside Baptist Church. I was with Dr. Forbes, Cornell West, Dr. Cornell West, Dolores Williams, who is, who is, I think she still is, the leading womanist theologian. So back in the, you know, 80s, early uh, 90s, I'm not that old, 90s, uh, womanist theology. Thank you so much. Is that for me or her? Okay, perfect. <laughs> Womanist theology was first coming onto the scene, and she was at Union Seminary, and all of them, and it was just phenomenal. And Larry Rasmussen, um, who began the conversation for me around environmental racism, which I wanted to talk a little bit about today when we, if we get to reparations. So to answer your question, which was about staying rooted in hope, I said to, to Dr. Forbes, because I guess I'm still young and naive, that you know Rachel cries out in her lament, how long, oh Lord, how long do we cry? And I said, Dr. Forbes, you know, the first time I met you was 1998, and we were marching um, because of some actions of police brutality in Manhattan and downtown. So we were just marching. And I remember him coming out, and he spoke. And I said, so that was, that was what, 20-something years ago? And the man is 88. He told us that every other sentence, 88 years old. 88 years old. And I know that he was marching against police brutality before I even arrived on the scene. So I was like, well, how long? And, and I'll encapsulate what he said, because it was quite long-winded. He's a poet. And he's, what I heard him say was, how dare you question God's time? And I was like, oh. How dare you question God's time? God said that God would redeem all situations. Your job is to help move us towards that time. 
You don't get to determine when it happens. Now, that wasn't quite the answer I wanted, right? But it's right in God's time. And if I stop moving us closer to God's time, then I'll have to answer to God for that when the time comes. So that's how I stay rooted in hope. You mentioned our stories, and I wanted to ask you a question about our story here at St. Columbus. I think, as you know, uh, thanks to the hard work of one of our parishioners, uh, we know that uh, the land on which our church is situated was worked by slave labor and was given to the church by the slaveholder. We know that the sanctuary in which we worship was funded by the inheritance of that slaveholder and also by the appropriation of eminent domain proceeds from, uh, that were supposed to go to our black mission church. Uh, we know that it was due at least in part to the complacency of this congregation that government policies displaced the black residents of Tinleytown and Fort Reno. So given that that's our story, I'd just be interested to hear you speak about how we meaningfully repent the history of which we're a part. Sure. Well, I guess inherent in that question, well, there's a lot in that question. <clears throat> First, one must tell their story. You must be honest about the story. We can talk about reparations. Um, and I, we have a working definition. I don't know it off the top of my head. Reparations is the spiritual and material process to remember, restore, reconcile, and make amends for historical and continuing wrongs against humanity that can never be singularly reducible to monetary terms, but must include a substantial investment and surrender of resources. So, reparation is a way. First, one must forgive oneself for the harm that was done on our behalf or that we did, right? That's part of our confession. We confess the evil done on our behalf and the evil that we have done. The second thing, and I, you know, I'm not necessarily the authority on this, so you'll get lots of different answers from the different people that you engage around. Um, but I think we've all done really stupid stuff in the past and stuff that has directly hurt another individual in ways that we can't repair. And this is one of those instances. And in this particular instance, there is some wealth attached. And quite frankly, you can never um, make it all better. It's already done. It's already done. But we can't acknowledge that we messed up. And this is where uh, there's some internal conversation 
upon the Reparations Committee, I'm co-chair, I'm one of the co-chairs, is that systemic injustice still persists. Race-based race injustice is still endemic in our society. Now, if we continue, we need to look at the past, but then we need to look at what are we doing right now that continues to perpetuate that which allowed for this to happen in the first place, right? And that is exactly what we can impact. Because uh, I have a quote here from Dr. King, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps perpetuate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. So you've acknowledged that it happened. At some point, it might be worth having a service of lament, like they did in New York. They had a service of lament and confession, right? You all talked about that? And then the next step <clears throat> would be to actively, and I think you're doing this too around the redlining stuff, actively engage in ways that will transform a dysfunctional, dehumanizing system so that something like this doesn't happen again, or at least so that the conditions are not ripe for it to happen again. And if we look at the trajectory of our political system right now, we might be just complicit in making sure the conditions are ripe for something like this to happen again. That's my perspective. But it's a big question. Other thoughts? All right, so I want to talk to you about something. I have so many things. Two things. I want to talk to you about power. And I want to talk to you about environmental reparations. Because we have talked about reparations. That's something that, that people understand as part of our diocesan work. Whether they agree with it or not, they understand the word. Environmental reparations is kind of different. Uh, I wanted to give you the story about a North Carolina community called Snow Hill. It's a historically African-American community. Uh, generations have lived in this area. There's an article. Um, they've been engaged in this work for about 10 years. I first heard about it um, some years ago when one of my seminarians was working on helping raise the money so that the residents could fight back against the, the city because there is a landfill that was, the land was sold right next to a community of black folks where they had been living, and that just diminishes property values. So wealth as we understand it in this country is generated by land ownership. And when you don't own land, it is hard to amass wealth. So those black people in North Carolina, in Snow Hill, owned that property. But it was being eaten up by uh, speculators, those people who come in and just take property. So um, at, 
at some point, it was just a small, 1974, it was a small dump, small city dump. And then by 1975, it had grown to acres of a dump. And 44 different counties are now bringing their trash into this space. Now, remember, North Carolina is agricultural. So not only are they bringing their household waste, they're bringing some of their agricultural waste. And getting mixed into that is some hazardous material waste. And so your, your land, every time, continues to lose value. So the man has been living there and wanted to hand the man who was the um, person in this story, had planted to give this land over to his grandchildren, but they don't want to come back because it smells so bad. So now, we started in 1975. This is 40-something years later. You've got odor, a horrible odor that permeates your clothes, everything, your house. Your air is polluted, your water is polluted, and the soil is contaminated. We know that environmental problems disproportionately impact marginalized groups, women, impoverished communities, and communities of color. Uh, I can point to New York, uh, where they, when they were planning cities, where they put the bus depot. When I was living in Atlanta, I, in my sermon I talk about moving there. I moved there in 1996-95. The Olympics were coming, and they literally moved people so that they could create spaces for the Olympic villages. And in the midst of that, they had to shift where buses were being parked, where other pollutants um, could fill a particular environment. Green space was decimated, and now you've got communities of color, poor, where the cases of asthma, lead poisoning, and other environmental issues which result in behavior problems, which are seen then in the public schools, and then those are lower functioning schools. And all of that, if you follow the money, can be traced back to some of what happened in 1996. If you want to look at our own diocese, we've got money. You always follow the money. The money is fascinating. The Seton Trust, we've got two funds, I understand it, Soper Fund and the Seton Trust. If you follow the Seton Trust, you might note that it was given to us by this man, George Seton. I think that's his name, George Seton. Just like the land here, he owned that part of Maryland, lots of land, farmland. I think, I, don't, I didn't write all the details down, but he ended up, um, I think he had like 30 farms, um, sort of southern Maryland area. Um, he went to school at Loyola, so he took a bus over there or something, and that was in Baltimore, came back. Uh, his, and, uh, let's see, all the way up through um, Beltsville, the, all of that land was, was Seton, Seton land. And then when he died, he left some of it to the church. But then he left, he left the, the church. Was, he, was like, he was the treasurer, the, one of the wardens of the church. So he left 
some land to the church. Part of the rule, or what he left in the will, is that there was this whole spot of land that we weren't supposed to touch. Trees. Because there were these beautiful trees. Well, it turns out the Episcopal Church needed some money in the 1980s. And so what they did was they went to court to get that little clause in the, um, in the will changed so that they could sell that land and then they stripped those trees because whatever type of trees they were, it was, and that was valuable wood. Well, the EPA, the group of environmentalists get wind of this and they come to stop it. But a good chunk of the land had already been decimated. The trees had already been cut down. The man loved his trees. It's a fascinating story. It's an easy Google search. So what have we done with that money? Some of it we use for Collington Square, and so that, that helps people who are retired and need assisted living. Um, the rest of that money, I'm still curious to find out how we're using it, the ways in which it's invested. Can that be some of the money that we look at around reparations? But here's the point. We cut down all these trees. Well, we know that trees are oxygen eaters. So if we want to do environmental reparations, we might think about where we plant trees. Now, we have a resolution that says when there's uh, events of funness, you know, like a confirmation or an anniversary, you're about to celebrate a retirement. Is he retiring or just, I think he's retiring, right? So he's retiring. You are invited to plant a tree. There is a congregation that I know that planted a tree and they planted it on their campus. It's gonna be beautiful where it is. But I was talking to a woman in New York, diocese, no, diocese in New Jersey, and she said, well, what we noticed is that in the poorer neighborhoods of New Jersey, there were people who were standing at the bus stops without shade. And so we made a point that when the congregations plant trees, that they put them in specific areas that will help produce shade. Easy. When we plant trees, we might consider putting the trees in places where we know that they are disproportionately impacted by environmental airborne challenges, right? Ward eight, ward seven. That might be a place to put trees. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk to you, I'm, I am at my time. You still have 13 minutes. Great. Power. We have power. And quite frankly, I could go buy a tree and plant it. There's actually free trees available from the district. You can go plant those. But power over versus power with. We all have power, which in organizing terms and by definition is the ability to act. I have the power to act. Now, when I use my power in such a way that it diminishes another person, that is against the gospel. That is power over. But when I'm exercising my power with, uh, it looks very different. So the Episcopal Church of the Epiphany primarily shares the good news through acts of justice and through good music. 
our mission is with those who are experiencing homelessness. Now, there are some ways that I might use my voice to address the systemic issues of homelessness. And some of that looks like working with uh, the Way Home campaign that works with uh, the Washington Interfaith Network. But a lot of that looks like being on the ground, listening to how people might want me to use my voice. And when they don't want me to use my voice. Reverend Glenna, how can you help me get into this room? But once we get there, you need to shut up. And me being willing to do that. Because the people who are directly impacted by these injustices need not be further diminished because I come in knowing what they need. So if you're gonna plant a tree in a neighborhood, be sure that you're invited into that neighborhood first. And we do that by being in relationship. And guess what? That takes us right back to our baptismal covenant to respect the worth and dignity of every human being and not assume that there is a human being that has less than or is less than. All of us, the other reading for today was from Corinthians about spiritual gifts. God has given all of us gifts. Every single person has a gift. My gift, I think, is public speaking. Don't ask me to do math. It's not my gift. I'd like to have someone on my staff who runs the numbers. Just tell me what it is I'm supposed to say to the vestry. I don't want you to show me. Just tell me because I'm not going to understand it. We can sit here all day. I'm not going to get it. But we can, I can pontificate all day long on theological nuance and, and scholars and Socrates and even Plato. I can do that all day. But my bookkeeper cannot and will not. The body of Christ is vast. And so we would do well to recognize the gifts of the body and then let people live into those gifts because it is dishonest and rude to not recognize the God in another person. James Ford said that too, but he used much more crass language. <laughs> I, I have time for a question.
think that reparations is this crazy idea and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Sure. I mean, I, I first, uh, I'm not the authority on this, David, so just clarify. I'm not the authority on it. Um, the first thing I would do is pray because those are difficult conversations to engage. The second is in the midst of that prayer, ask God to open your heart so that you can listen. Uh, there's one sermon I get, uh, there's one version of my sermon, I don't know which one you'll get today, but it talks about loving our enemies. There are some enemies I'm just not ready to love today. Uh, so I'm not going to go talk to them. I'm a work in progress. God understands that. But there are some enemies or people whose understanding of my personhood is challenged when I walk in the room. I can still walk into that space. And I know what I'm walking into. But I go in with an open heart. And I'm not trying to change minds, right? Here's the thing. You can either accept reparations or not. God's going to do what God does. The better thing would be for you to get on board with the direction that God is going so that we can move quicker to God's dream. This is, I'm projecting my own judgment. <laughs> But I get it. We got to meet people where we are. If we push people too far, too fast, they will reject the message. And so be clear about who you're speaking to. This conversation looks different in this space than it would in the space that I regularly serve, than it would in black church. This conversation looks different here than it does in Connecticut, than it does in Atlanta, and then when it does in, Atlanta, uh, in Baltimore, same conversation, but I use the words that can be heard by the people I'm speaking to. And I push, with you all I'm using the word reparations, I like reparations, it's a good word, it makes you uncomfortable. But in other spaces, I have been asked to refrain from using reparations. Glenna, can you not say environmental reparations? Can you use the word restoration? Internally, I say, as a matter of fact, I cannot. Because we are talking about reparations. We are talking about financial restitution. We are talking about pushing people to do better, but... If I kick people off the train before we even leave the station, it's a disservice. So I'm not exactly sure how to talk, how you talk to people who don't want to hear. Um, there's lots of people who don't want to hear about reparations. There's lots of people who don't want to hear about equal justice. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is a red state. Donald Trump was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My mom said, hey, Glenda, there's a helicopter, and it's Donald Trump. I was like, did you wave? She said no. People turned out. It was, a, it was some sort of environmental 
weather event and these people showed, oh, it was COVID. It was in the middle of COVID. And you know, Pizza Man, what's his name? The pizza, you don't know. The Pizza Man ended up dying, right? Because he went out in the middle of this thing to see this man. Guess what? I would not have been there. But I understand that the people who are my neighbors, the people that I went to school with, I went to the same school from fourth through 12th grade. Those people are on my Facebook page. They were down there hanging out with Donald Trump and they voted for him. The man's very presence, his words indicate that he would rather exist in a world that didn't have me in it or people who look like me in it. But these are the people that I'm in relationship with. What am I gonna do? Continue to function with integrity. I'm the same person, I am saying the same words, I am banging the same drum of freedom. I'm the one who started the multicultural club at my school because I was one of six black students. They know who I am, and I know who they are. But we gotta come to some type of, we probably don't need to agree, but again, it's not my complete responsibility. I gotta do the work that God has called me to do, and Dr. Uh, the Reverend Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, you do your little bit of good where you are, and those little bits of good will change the world. Nobody's gonna stop me from doing that. Thank you. Thanks. If you have not had the opportunity to hear Reverend Glenna Huber's sermon, I hope you'll stay for the 1115. If you've already heard it and want to stick around and hear it again, stay with us. It'll be different, so stick around. Be here all morning. Thanks for coming.